When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to another episode of Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and wherever you are in the world, it's great to have you with us. On today's episode, I'm joined by two brilliant thriller writers who'll be going head-to-head a little later in a war of the words in Ah. our Book Off. We'll find out what books they'll be championing soon. My first guest is the legendary broadcaster, music fanatic and best-selling author of the very popular Itch book series, which was recently made into a TV show and broadcast on the BBC. See how I'm still going, even though you're trying to put me off. He's also published two adult novels, the latest of those being Knife Edge, which we'll talk about more today. Simon Mayo, hello to you. Hello, Joe Hanno. I love the fact that you say wherever in the world you're listening. It makes it makes us feel like it's Live Aid. <laughs> you know, we're, we're being beamed. I'm status quo. And uh, who am I then? Am I Queen? Go. Hopefully, I'm Queen. If you'd like, I'd to, like to be Queen, I please. Think you yes. be, you can be Queen or you too. <laughs> well, you know, we are global. I mean, the podcast is global, so by its very nature, uh, and the. My second guest, the voice you can hear there of Queen, is the international best-selling author of Before I Go to Sleep, which became a huge global success, sparked the film of the same name starring Nicole Kidman, Colin Firth and Mark Strong, and he's here to tell us about his third novel, Final Cut. SJ Watson, hello to you. Hi. I, I also, it's probably worth saying, I do do my hoovering in a miniskirt and, <laughs> and earrings, so... <laughs> I have heard, I have heard. Well, Simon may not remember this, but it's uh, a while ago when we were working on a radio show, I actually took a photo of him doing the Freddie Mercury with a hoover. And uh, <laughs> I've still got that in on my phone in case I ever need it. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> it's a shame we can't all be together, obviously, in person, but um, you have met before you two, haven't you? I think you've done... Yes. You've done things, events, and stuff before, so yeah, I think at least once we have. Haven't we? I, mean, yeah, I know before I, I go to sleep was yeah. was a Radio Two book club choice as well. well. I think that may have even been my first my first radio ever. Uh, right. Thinking In about fact, it, now, I to, made yeah. the book. I made. You did the actually, book. yes. <laughs> really, <laughs> what it was. I do remember receiving receiving a copy of it, and we uh, we went on the family went on holiday, and all it said on the front. I think it was pre publication copy. And it mm. just said S.J. Watson on the front. And 
as other people did, my wife and I had a long conversation about whether SJ was male or female because it mm-hmm. was impossible to tell. <laughs> uh, and we, and we dis, you know, and we disagreed. And anyway, obviously, I, I discovered that SJ is Steve, but there was one so, of the so were you, were you the pumping for me being a, being a, a woman then? To be and honest, I can't is... remember. But we, right. <laughs> we, 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 you know, we disagreed. But but it was a nice it was a nice piece of positioning on the cover. Yes. No. It. it, it, it yeah. I still get asked that question though. Weirdly, <laughs> online I still get asked the question quite a lot. And that was on Drive Time. Back in the Radio 2 days, Simon, and of course, you're back on Drive Time in March. I am. With your new gig, congratulations. Yeah, well, it was it was an interesting thing, because so I've been working for, for Bauer, who own a number of different radio stations, and they've got this kind of new network, which they're very excited about, called Greatest Hits Radio, which is like a classic hits format, playing 70s, 80s, 90s music, and they offered me the chance of doing Drive Time, and it did feel as though there was some unfinished business, you know, we just stopped a little bit too early. So I jumped at the chance of doing it again, you know, so so that's what I'm going to be doing uh, from March, which hopefully will be a lot of fun. It will be. I can't wait to tune in. Um, and Steve, how have you been faring these last sort of 12 months in lockdown 7.9 or wherever in now? Are you, have you been <laughs> yeah. doing all right? <laughs> Well, I have actually, you know, I'm incredibly lucky that my work hasn't, uh, hasn't been affected. You know, I can, I can work. I, I mean, I work from home anyway. Uh, I'm used to my own company. I quite like solitude. So in that, from that respect, in that respect, it's, it's, it's not been, you know, other people have had it far, far worse than I have. And I was very lucky as well, because um, uh, my intention was always to, to spend um, last year writing a new book. Uh, so I, I just kind of got my head down and did it. I mean, I, I mean, I know a lot of uh, a lot of fellow writers have. I don't know about you, Simon, but I know a lot of fellow writers really struggled to actually put pen to paper over the lockdown and uh, even to read in some cases. But uh, I, I was fortunate that I, I already had a plan, so I just kind of pushed on. So yeah, so I'm, I'm actually, you know, I count my blessings. The last to, to answer your question specifically, the last time I actually saw my editor um, at, at Transworld uh, was about a year ago and we mm. had a very nice couple of glasses of wine in one of <laughs> London's low rent wine bars <laughs> and and it was very nice and I kind of outlined what I was going to do and I'd sent him about 20,000 words I think since then I've written about 5,000 words I found yeah. it almost impossible to I mean I've obviously been busy with uh radio and stuff but mm. I have found it almost impossible to to write what well, my, my hope is just ties into the the new radio show thing is that what I always found worked best for me because almost all of my writing has coincided with doing drive time for radio two is that writing in the morning and doing the radio in the afternoon seemed to work. And, uh, I like the idea of maybe being able to go back to that of getting up early. I just tend to wake up early anyway and just going and, and starting to write. And if I write for two or three hours, that's fine because I don't need to engage with the radio program until later. Mm. So, I, so I am hoping that from, from March, and I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of my editor, and <laughs> that I can actually pull my finger out and, and actually make some progress on the new novel. And I, because, you know, I'm a little bit behind. But you, you mentioned you, you're an early riser like me, Simon, and actually there's something in that sort of, you know, couple of hours when no one else is up, where it's just quiet and you've, you know, you can concentrate. And if it's a routine that you've been used to as well, that you've, you know, produced the other books from, it's you're probably going to find a sort of comfort in it when you get back to it. Well, yes. I mean, I, 
I hope so. It's it feels like a lost world at the moment, but I, I've I don't know what Steve's like, but when when I'm out of the groove, so I've written about twenty six thousand or something like that. I know I'm going to have to go back and read from the beginning, which I've done about six times. You know, I've gone back, start again, start again, start again, and each of the books. So there's three each. There's Blame, which was a YA book, Mad Blood Stirring, and now Knife Edge. Each time I've thought, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. In each one, yeah. I've thought, I, I don't think this is going to work. And so I'm at that stage at the moment of thinking, I, I really don't think this is going to work. I mean, I'm sure, it, I'm sure it will. I just need to get on with it. If it's any consolation, I know, I know uh, and I know you won't mind me saying this because Ian Rankin did a documentary with, uh, I think it was the BBC, but anyway, he did a documentary and he talked about this exact thing and he says every single book he has a, he has a, a period where he goes through, which is this is the one that's going to break me and I can't do it and why did I ever think I could do this and this is going to, you know, this is, this is my, I've written my final book, I'm going to have to, and his wife always says to him, are you at 60,000 words, Ian? And, uh, and, and, he, and he always is, <laughs> and it's every single time, and it always creeps up on him, even though it happens every time. So, uh, and I know I certainly go through that. I don't know if it's at sixty thousand words, but I think it's kind of normal, isn't it? I hope it's normal anyway. Um, <laughs> well, the, my, so, my yeah. trouble, the trouble is, I've reached that at twenty-five thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, maybe that's just when it hits. You're just a, you're just an early riser. You know, you just get it. Maybe. You get there. You yeah. get there quicker than everybody else. Let's go, <laughs> I think let's so, go with that. Yeah. And and Steve, we had uh, Jeffrey Deaver was on the podcast for the last series, and he was saying a bit like what you were. You know, he hadn't sort of other than reading the news and obvious, the, all the mm. obvious, he hadn't actually noticed that he was in lockdown because his days are spent on his own, sort of, <laughs> you know, in a room, tapping away and then walking the dogs for a break, you know. And I suppose, yeah, in a sense, that's what you felt last year, you know, because you'd had the idea, I guess, you were able to sort of crack on with it. Well, exactly that, yeah. And, uh, and I mean, I've recently moved house, but, but last year I was, I was living in the middle of nowhere, a beautiful house in the countryside, but middle of nowhere. So actually, I, I, could, I could, apart from the fact that there were no planes going overhead, which let's face it, I didn't really notice unless I listened for them. <laughs> you know, it was exactly the same. Um, I mean, obviously, obviously, I'm, you know, there was a situation if, if I needed, if I, if I felt I needed to go out and sort of and see friends and, and as you said Simon meeting an editor in person it's like it's also been every year since I've done that so that stuff wasn't available which was the big difference but on a day-to-day -day basis I just kind of got up and didn't really notice a difference I mean now I'm living in the middle of a city <laughs> so I actually can tell the difference now um, but uh, uh, but um, it's yeah it's uh, I was very lucky yeah well those are the books of the future and we look forward to finding out what they are as and when you finish them but let's talk about that's assuming we're both wrong and we <laughs> yes exactly yeah yeah that I might get, that this might i might not ever write another thing that might, let's, that might be it let's hope ian rankin's wife is right um yes let's she should be about... on speed dial for all of us actually yeah. that's, that's she could true. start her own sort of service <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> let's talk about the two uh books that are out at the moment your latest novels out in paperback and simon i'm talking about knife edge of course um and this book has a, a very devastating sort of opening sequence that I still, I read it a while ago when it first came out and I yeah. still remember it. So for those that haven't got to it yet, can you just explain how, how your story starts and maybe a little bit more about how the plot unfolds? Yes, it has. It's interesting. Um, a colleague um, asked, he said, I think this is your angry book and actually tied it straight into 
back to the radio and the events of 2018 uh, and so this is you working it out, which I I think that's a, so amateur psychology. I don't think that's right, but anyway, it's certainly <laughs> it's certainly uh, a more aggressive book than some that I've uh, written. It starts with a uh, a rush hour, a devastating um, rush hour where there are uh, seven murders in twenty nine minutes. So it's all on the first page. Um, we don't really know who these people are. We don't know who's carrying out the attacks. Uh, and then after this one particular devastating rush hour, we hook in with uh, a woman called Femi Madden, who is a 40-something journalist who works for one of the big news agencies in London. And it's her, she's on her way to work. And as she hooks into her shift, her job is slot. It's known as slot. It basically is like a news editor. It means that she's in charge of sifting the stories, tasting the stories, deciding what goes on the wires and what doesn't. And quickly, and, and obviously she sits down, this story starts un starts unfolding and uh, on the TV screens and on the other newswires, reports of these uh, attacks and murders come in and she quickly realises they're into a major incident. She then also realises, as the faces and names become evident, that she knows the people who have been killed. Not only that, but they're the people who sit next to her. And the people who've been killed are the news agency's investigative reporting team. And no one knows what they've been working on, but they've been taken out. And so the rest uh, of the book is Femi trying to work out what happened and why it happened. And she she goes to all the, the funerals of her colleagues. And at the very last funeral, she goes back to her car and there is a note underneath the windscreen. Uh, and the note has been typewritten, as in on an old-fashioned typewriter, in kind of Tom Hanks style. It's obviously not Tom Hanks, <laughs> nor is he going to be in there. Anyway, uh, and it and it and it it, it just says um, uh, it just says you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And she is of an age that she doesn't immediately spot it as a Bob Dylan lyric, but she takes and she quickly finds out what it is. Um, and it's the, and obviously someone is leaving her a message, but she doesn't know why and she doesn't know what it means. So the rest of the book is her sort of unraveling that and trying to find out who it is who's trying to contact her and it really is a i mean it's such a page turner simon and i know thinking back to mad blood stirring which is your previous adult novel which you know that that idea came from a small news cutting i think um which you then sort of researched to form the story was there a sort of similar inspiration for for this novel well look i mean there was but it sounds so pathetic uh, i wish i could <laughs> I wish that there was a really grand reason for me writing this, but sometimes it's just a number of things happening at the same time, which push you in one particular direction. But, at, but specifically it was a typo. I was trying to write in a document. I don't know if it was a letter or why I was writing it. I was trying to write CNN as in the TV station in America, but I didn't write CNN. I'm re I typed it wrong and I wrote CNX. And and I looked on the it was like the first thing that I'd written and it was sat, and it sat there on the page CNX and I thought that's quite a good title actually I quite like I've got no idea what that is and then underneath it I wrote <laughs> when television goes bad so that's what it was that's it was just um, either the front page of a screenplay or the front page of a of a novel or something and I thought okay well it would be like a news channel where bad stuff has happened and we just have to try and work out what. And it sort of went from there. And the, my aforementioned editor, who I haven't seen for a year, but bought me wine. 
Um, he said, let's not do um, a TV newsroom or a radio newsroom, which are the newsrooms that, I, that I'm familiar with, having, having worked at Five Live for a number of years. Um, let's do a news agency because not a news agent, but a new, you know, a worldwide, like, like a, like a Reuters <laughs> or a Bloomberg, because that has kind of more international understanding. Uh, and that was, and that again was what editors are for, because it was a great piece uh, of advice. And I then went to, uh, had a look around Reuters, went with a journalist there and, uh, and looked at how they operate. So it's, so yeah, so it, it but it came out of a, a one letter typo, uh, which just triggered a number of different thoughts. Well, I think that is quite a good story, actually. Yeah, I think, me I think too. you know you don't need to change that up. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, in a, in a sort of ju- juxtaposition to Simon's crowded station, Euston Station, at the beginning of the book, which of course mm. is alien to all of us at the moment. Um, <laughs> yeah. In Final Cut, we've got this sort of seaside town that's turned into a, a, a ghost town, the town of Blackwood mm. Bay. Um, mm. I grew up in a seaside town, and, and luckily it hasn't turned into a ghost town, unlike some destinations in the UK that, that have obviously but it's the setting of your novel and I just wonder what what drew you to to that as the place yeah well um f- well first of all I suppose the, the, one of the things is um I really love a, a place in the north your in North Yorkshire called Robin Hood's Bay oh yeah um which uh, and Blackwood Bay is fictional very very much so but it shares a lot of its uh sort of geography especially and, and the landscape and everything with Robin Hood's Bay uh, and it was partly, but the, but the bigger question, I suppose, is why why did I want to set it in a in a slightly run down seaside village at all? <laughs> and I think I think the reason there really was because I was um, mostly consciously wanted to move away from the world of my first two books, which were very sort of city based, very urban, and uh, I just wanted to introduce landscape into my work uh, and. But, and a place where I've always loved books in which place is very important and place feels like another character almost. And I, yeah. and I wanted to see if I could do that, I suppose, in a way, or have a, have a go at, at, at what, see what that felt like. Um, so it was a combination, really, of, yeah, of wanting it to be... I also wanted to be to feel weirdly less, less claustrophobic because I find the first two books, it was quite deliberately wanted a kind of claustrophobic atmosphere to them. And I, and I found setting them in a, in a big, heavily populated city achieved that. And I, I wanted the opposite with this book. Um, so it was kind of a reaction to the first two books uh, against the first two books, not in a negative way, not in a kind of, oh, that, that didn't work, I want to do something else, but just I wanted to just, you know, expand my wings a little bit. And the reason it was it was uh, Robin Hood's Bay, well, Blackwood Bay became Robin Hood's Robin's Night Bay became Black Bay, <laughs> yes, um, was just because I really like, I think for those people that don't know Robin's Bay, it's, it's quite unusual because it's a kind of tiny fishing village, but it's, it's set into very steep hills, uh, cliffs, I suppose. And for that reason, cars can't really get down there. So all the cars kind of have to park at the top of the, of the, of the town. And it is a small village, really. They have to park at the top of the village and then people have to walk down. So there are no cars. So when you're there, it does have a kind of strangely, uh, I was going to say otherworldly, perhaps not otherworldly atmosphere, but it has a strangely archaic atmosphere, I suppose. And it does feel like, you know, you could you could be almost 200, 300 years ago, apart from, you know, everyone's on iPhones, obviously. <laughs> but, <laughs> and the, but the atmosphere, it's a very atmospheric place, I suppose. And so it kind of lent itself to this book. 
Well, I remember, this is not a UK example, but I remember going to New Jersey a few years back out of season and walking down the famous Bruce Springsteen promenade and it, you know, just being very dilapidated. And there's a real eeriness to it, you know. Mm. And there was nothing specifically there that made me, that, 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 that would conjure up the eeriness. It just was. It just was because of the mm. fact that you associate this place with being alive, with families and, mm. you know, and, and, and noises and happiness. And, of course, in the dead of winter or whatever, it's just, it's just not. Um, so I got that from the pages, is sort of why I'm saying that. But I wondered what... What drew you to have a documentary filmmaker as the protagonist? Well, one of, I mean, there are a few things I was particularly interested in with this, but one of them was, uh, well, first of all, it was one of the inspirations from it was actually documentary. Um, uh, there's a documentary that came out a few years ago called, um, God, the title has gone. What's it called? <laughs> Life in a Day. Life in a Day. Ah. Um, yeah, Simon and, and I know about Life in a Day. Do you? Right. Did you have some involvement? Oh, yeah, in? yeah, because they've, they, they've just done a new version of it. Yeah, for, with YouTube, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, which I haven't... Oh, no, the first one was with YouTube, wasn't it? That's right. Um, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it's ten, it's ten years on now. It's not just ten done years on, is it? it no. Is, yeah. No, it can't be. <laughs> Tell me it's not that <laughs> Um Yeah, but for those that don't know, so Life in a Day was a documentary composed of, of films that people had shot themselves all over the world. Um, but on one particular day in, well, apparently 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, and then the filmmakers obviously had kind of compiled into, into a sort of narrative and a snapshot of the, of the world, the globe, at, at this particular point in history. And I kind of wanted to flip that idea slightly and, and have a filmmaker who was making a film with people, again, shooting their own stories on their camera phones and whatever. But instead of it being on a particular date, but all over the world, but having it in a very limited geographic area, so just this one village, um, and, and told over a period of months. So that was kind of where the idea came from, really. Um, and it was partly because one of the things I was interested in was, was um, social media and the way that we're sort of driven, or lots of people anyway, are kind of driven these days to just document absolutely everything that they do. And, you know, and I'm kind of guilty as well, to an extent of that. You know, I don't quite Instagram every single breakfast I have, but I'm not that far off it, you know. Um, and I was interested in the exposing nature of that, um, and it's quite with my second book, um, Second Life. I was I was interested in the way that social media can can facilitate you disguising yourself, I suppose, and presenting yourself as other than you are, and presenting an aspect of yourself which is kind of fictional, which I think it also allows. But with this book, I was more interested in in the way that there are things which will you can you, social media can be very exposing, um, and you can find yourself um, letting people see more than you perhaps intended to. Uh, so it was a kind of it was a combination of all of those things that I wanted to sort of um, uh, create somebody in Alex in the main character who unwittingly to an extent starts sort of causes trouble I suppose with this film that she's making uh, and and mm. finds that uh, things are being revealed that she wasn't prepared for. Uh, so yeah, and I, do you know it's an interesting point about the sort of. Instagram social media thing and the documentary and talking about um, life in the day, day in the life. It's, you know, they, they, it seems like to me, because I'm not a big social media user, I don't particularly like it, but it seems to me like people just don't really mind splashing whatever, whatever they're doing all across, you know, mm. the, the internet for us all to see. And there is this sort of voyeurism to this book I felt and there is this sort of voyeurism in in the sense of Instagram and all the 
social media channels, you know, is people sharing and us looking in and wanting to see more. Mm. And I think that, you know, you've got that sort of voyeurism in this book. Is Was that intentional? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, a couple of the other... Insp- I mean, I've always loved photography. And another couple of things that inspired me was there were two particular photographic projects, one of which uh, I think was called Dirty Windows. Uh, I can't remember but quite, but it was basically a photographer was staying in an apartment in New York. Uh, and this is, I think this is sort of going back 20 or 30 years now. And she found that through the window of her apartment, she could see into the, uh, the, the window of the bathroom of the strip club that was up on the other side of the road. So she would set, she set, she set up her camera and took a series of uh, black and white photos of what was going on in the bathroom. And it was people having sex, people taking drugs, all kinds of things. You couldn't see who anybody was, but it wasn't kind of, um, in that sense, it wasn't exposing. But it was very voyeuristic, obviously. Now, these people weren't aware they were being photographed. Uh, and and I, I, mean, I assume never consented to have their, the photographs that were made of their, of their activities, you know, put up on the walls of art galleries and, and in books and things. Um, and then there was another one kind of similar in which uh, a photographer, a Japanese photographer, I think, um, she put postcards through the, let- through the, the, uh, the letterboxes of people who lived on the ground, in, on ground floor apartments, um, again in the States. And she said, I, I, I'd like to, t- to make a f- portrait of you. And I want to do that by, by uh, at a particular time, you stand in your window inside your home uh, and I will be outside your home and I, you'll be able to see me and I will take a photograph of you through the window. But we won't speak. We won't have any communication other than this postcard. And, and, this, and that's slightly different because the people did consent. But seeing those photos, both of those sets of photos is very, very uh, kind of um, disturbing in a way because they really blur the line between voyeurism and surveillance and what's consensual and what's not consensual and so on and and yeah and they kind of these people found them i I find particularly the latter photos of the people standing in their own living rooms quite revealing even Mm. though they just stood there in their ordinary clothes in their ordinary homes you know just looking out um at this mysterious photographer outside and so those were those uh, those were two of the other things which kind of fed into the book really so yeah the Mm. voyeurism was definitely a, a conscious thing yeah, well, it, it you know it really comes across, and I I loved reading both of these books. As I said, I read Simon's a long while back, but I, I remember it very much, and and I loved reading yours, Steve. It was a right old page turner. Um, well, thank and you. <laughs> sticking on the old voyeuristic sort of line, uh, in a way, um, I want to talk about film adaptations or screen adaptations, should I say? And Steve, I already referenced, obviously, before I go to sleep, was made into that major Hollywood film, and Simon, you've You've recently, or more recently, had a, a an adaptation of your um, earlier books, the Itch books, made for yeah. It was um, a- ABC, was it uh, ABC Australia? Yes, I mean the, it was interesting. Hearing Steve talking about particular settings and sense of place. The Itch books are very much set in Cornwall. They're very much Cornish books because the geology of Cornwall is so unique and um, has delivered over the centuries uh, gold. Um, tin, copper, all you know, all kinds of mm. uh, interesting stuff. Um, so it was always going to be set there. So to find that it's a TV series set in Albany, Western Australia, was a surprise. <laughs> but um, but actually made more sense the more I found out found out about Albany because it's it's a because it is a, is a mining story. It's about stuff that's come out from the ground and. Uh, Albany, um, Western Australia, is a very big mining 
part of Australia. So therefore, the uh, that first book starts with with an earthquake, and it made perfect sense for uh, the TV adaptation to also start with an earthquake and for it to be about rocks and uh, itches an element hunter. So the so the first TV series, which I think is still on iPlayer uh, over here, they just filmed finished filming the second series in Australia. I think the second and third series will deviate a little from, well, or quite a lot from, from what I wrote in, <laughs> uh, in the books. But the first, the first TV series is pretty close to, it's like an Australian version of, of what I wrote with all kinds of, uh, with all kinds of, uh, so, so, um, um, your very knowing audience will be aware of this, Joe, but when you have a children's book, because I mean, for me, the itch books was somewhere between children and YA uh, slash yeah. grown up because I enjoyed um, being a part of them. Uh, you can allow a far greater degree of threat and danger than you can on children's television. And because these have been filmed for children's television, um, a lot of the threat has been dialed down. And one of the main characters uh, in in the trilogy really is is this guy called cake he's a sort of mysterious guy who wander who wanders around selling rocks and different elements uh, and so on and anyway he gets radi he gets radiation sickness and he dies halfway through the first book but in the t in the tv series he gets better he gets better you know because <laughs> it's a tv show for kids so therefore um you know you don't have so you know so it's so it's different but hey uh, i went to go out January before last, um, met the cast, um, watched the filming, was there on day one, um, listened to the first shot, which they film in this, on this beautiful beach, which I wrote at my kitchen table in North London. You know, so it was just, <laughs> hey, it, was a, you know, it was a wonderful experience. And, and for Steve, for the whole before, before I go to sleep experience must have been even more extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. And exactly that. I mean, I was also on set. I mean, Liza, the producer, made the mistake of telling me I could go whenever I wanted. So I think she wasn't quite <laughs> wrong. <laughs> she, exactly. And, and it was it wasn't it wasn't filmed in Australia. It was filmed in uh, in, in London. So uh, I wasn't quite there every day. But I think it, well, I mean, I had my own chair. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. A bit like what you're saying, Simon, it's, you know, to, to sort of be there on a film set where I never I never thought I would get anywhere near a film set, you know, in my life. It wasn't the, where, where I saw my life going and but to be not only there on a film set with Nicole Gibbons stood in front of me but Nicole Gibbons stood stood dressed as a, as a character who'd begun in my head you know telling a story that I'd that I'd invented was um just incredibly surreal so yeah it was very very strange and, and very wonderful a question for both of you I suppose is it sort of an, an enjoyable experience though because I know neither of you were you know wrote I don't believe the uh, the screenplays but um no I didn't no. but as as a, you know as you're as you're saying it's like oh I I thought up this character or this opening scene on my kitchen table 3 years ago and here it is being you know mm. portrayed on the screen it must it must be a sort of great experience do you, would you say well I th yeah okay I mean I mean y y yes I mean obviously yes obviously yes it's a qualified yes because um what a thrill, you know, and particularly in children's books. If you, I went round to scores and scores of uh, of schools talking about the book, talking about the periodic table, um, uh, and it was great. And when you ask kids questions at the end, uh, all the hands go up, and they want to know one, how much do you earn? Two, uh, how old are you? Three, is it going to be on television or is it a film? That's how they register whether it's going to be successful or not. 
So the fact that it was filmed and the fact that it did end up on television is, of course, a huge thrill. The, the, the only qualification is it's never the way you imagine it in your head. And, you, and I'm speaking for me here. I got, mm. I'm very, very possessive and protective about these characters who exactly, as Steve was just saying, I, I thought of these people. They came out of my head. So mm. what, how, come, how come you've made this person <laughs> like this when it, they belong they, you know, they belong to me. To which the answer is, um, they're making a television program. Why don't you just let them get on and make the television program? And and obviously somewhere there's a compromise, and and hopefully everyone's uh, happy at the end. But it was the, it was exactly the same as when I handed over the book in the first place, having never intended it to be a published novel anyway. I just wrote it for my ten year old son. Um, when the editor comes at, uh, came back and said, "I'm not sure about this." What about, mm. <laughs> and I was thinking, how dare you? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's, that's my initial reaction because, because it's kind of personal. It's like someone criticizing your family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you sort of nodding along to that, Steve. Is, is yeah, that, absolutely. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, I, I, slightly different because with, with, with me, I, I made the decision uh, very early on to A, not get too excited about the film because I'd heard so many stories about films that nearly get made but then don't. I thought... You know, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to allow myself to get too excited about it until until Nicole Kidman is stood there in front of the camera and there's film in it. And, you know, and it's all it's all happening. Um, and also but also I, I, I met Rowan um, and Liza, who were the director and producer, respectively. And Rowan wrote it as well. And I just got on really well with them both. And I, I knew that Rowan Rowan's intentions were good. And so, I mean, of course his intentions were good, but, you know, I felt a connection there artistically. So I kind of made the decision to just let him get on with it. And, and, and I saw it as a separate project. I almost, I mean, I'm, I'm not a musician, but I imagine it must be like if, if somebody does a cover version of one of your songs, you know. Um, I would have hated it if they changed the words and, and you know, and, and changed the melody. But, but actually, as long as the spirit of the song is the same, it, it was just exciting to see. So I'm mixing my metaphors now, aren't I? No, I, <laughs> I, I think this is great. If, they, yeah, if they'd have changed the story or, you know, set it in space or changed the ending dramatically, <laughs> I, you yeah. know, I would have said something and said, excuse me, you know, this is not, not what the book was. But, but other than that, because they, they, they weren't doing that, I was just quite excited to see what this different person was bringing to the story. And, um, and yeah, it, it, it just did feel like a cover version. So I had a, I had a great experience. And there was one moment towards the end where I was on set this day, because I was on set most days, but there was on set and there was this one scene that they were, they were struggling with. And um, I'd read the script for that day. And I'd also thought this isn't quite right, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And then there was a moment where Nicole Kidman just said, to Rowan, well, it's because she wouldn't say this. The line, there was a line she was struggling with, and she, well, she wouldn't say this. She would say this, and she suggested an alternative. And I, and I just thought she's absolutely right. She really <laughs> is. And and I really had this kind of quite strange sense of this uh, this this character belongs to Nicole Kidman now. She's not mine anymore. Uh, which is which is great because you know I'd had enough of her by that point. <laughs> oh, let Nicole have her. <laughs> yeah, you can have her. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it did feel like handing handing it over and just seeing seeing what came out. I mean, I think if I'd have hated the film, I would have probably been sat here now with a with a very different take on it. Um, you know, they ruined it. Um, but uh, because I like I like what they did, I like the movie that, that that emerged. It's easy for me to sit there and say, yeah, I had a great experience. Although it is different, but but yeah, it's fun. I, you know, I quite like that. 
Well, I just love hearing that because I'm sort of fascinated in it as a, as a lover of books and films, as I know you both are. It's just mm. I love those two worlds coming together and, and, and sort of hearing your experiences of them uh, being turned, you know, books being turned into screen adaptations. Before we um, get to our book off where you're each going to pitch us a book that you love and think that we should all read if we haven't already. I, I would love to ask my guests what they've been reading recently and if anything sort of stood out. And it's a question, of course, that I hate myself. And whenever <laughs> whenever anyone asks me, I go blank and I think, oh, goodness, what have I, I haven't read anything in years. I, I did, I've ne- not read Simon Mayer's new book. I haven't read S.J. <laughs> Watson's new book. I just can't think of anything. But of course, I don't have to answer it. You do. So, um, Steve, what have you been reading recently? <laughs> I can't even remember what I'm reading now. Um, no, I, no, I can't. Um, I have read a proof of a book that's out, I think, in March called Tall Bones, which is by Anna Bailey. It's a debut. It's a thriller. It's set in small town America. Uh, and um, it's really gripping. I, I just really, really enjoyed that. So I think, and it, it seems to be developing a bit of a buzz about it as well, which I think is a great thing to see. Um, and I think it's going to do very well. And I highly recommend it. Tall Bones by Anna Bailey. And what else? Um, the Lamplighters is also out quite soon, which I read um, last year. And I think that's out in March or April. It perhaps. is, yeah. March 4th. Yeah. Oh right, okay. There we there we go. Um, well, I only know that because yeah. Emma was a guest uh, on this ah, series, and so right. that's how. I, yeah. It's not like I've got some encyclopedic. I was going to say you're googling <laughs> as I speak. Um, can you tell me how to pronounce her surname? Because I don't actually know. Well, Is I it said Stonex. Stonex. Yeah, I said yeah. Stonex, and she yeah. didn't correct me. Right. So Emma Stonex, the Lamplighters, which I really enjoyed. It's kind of a mix of a ghost story, love story based on a true story about um, some lighthouse keepers who disappeared off the coast of uh, Cornwall, uh, from the lighthouse off the coast of Cornwall. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. So those two are my uh, things I've really loved recently. Two great recommendations. What, what about you, Simon? Have you found time to, to read in between all your other commitments? Well, I've been reading Final Cut by S.J. Watson because I'm interviewing <laughs> him tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> uh, and enjoying that very much. Um, uh, American Dirt, uh, Janine Cubbins, um, which is come out, coming out in paperbacks, already one of the bestsellers of last year. Oprah picked it um, as one of her books. Uh, there's a, I think there's, uh, there are some question marks about how it was marketed particularly, but the content of the book is fantastic and about a mother and daughter who their family is wiped out in the first chapter and they become migrants heading north into uh, into America. And uh, it's I thought it was terrific. Um, um, a River Called Time, I've been reading, which is by Cortia Newland. Uh, Cortia wrote two of the small acts films on television. For, oh, great. Um, for Steve McQueen, he wrote the um, Lover's Rock uh, episode and also the one with John Boyega. Uh, anyway, I mean, I don't... Uh, Cortia is also writing the screenplay for um, Mad Blood Stirring, so... Kind of well disposed towards him. Um, uh, anyway, but, I mean, but I, I re, uh, the thing is, I never finish these books because I do so many. Because I, I do this po- books podcast as you know. I mean, they're you know, this, I'm sure everyone has a books podcast, really. But anyway, I, so I also have a books podcast called Books of the Year, and um, actually ending a book, and I do a book a week on Scala as well. So actually, getting to the end of a book is really, really difficult. Um, so I'm, I sort of race through the first third, then stop because the next one has arrived. So 
when I say I've read them, I haven't finished either of those, but um, enjoy. <laughs> but you've enjoyed them up to that point, yes. At least. And uh, and so so also so when I get to interview S.J. Watson about Final Cut uh, on Scala tomorrow, he will know that I haven't finished the book, which I genuinely haven't. I will now. Yeah, I'm going to ask you how what you thought of the end. But but the key the key thing is for a radio interview is. You never talk about the end anyway. In in a yeah, exactly. it genuinely, yeah. genuinely doesn't. In, in in my opinion, it you go you go and watch a movie and that's fine. But I think if I don't know how the final third unfolds, well, that's more to the good. That's not going to make a difference, is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for those recommendations. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Um, and before we go, we've got to do the book off. So this is where each of you gets three minutes to pitch us uninterrupted a book that you love, that you think we should all read. Before we get the wheels in motion, uh, we've got to decide who goes first and who goes second. So, Steve, do you want to go first or do you want to see what Simon's got so you can try and match up I'll go first if Simon doesn't mind. No, it's fine. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> I'm not very good at pitching books, so, <laughs> which has been... Well, been, we'll be the judge of <laughs> Which that. has been pointed out to me many times. <laughs> in fact, in fact someone, at, someone at Transworld, my publisher, once said to me, don't ever pitch your own book, Steve. I told I was trying to, I was trying to tell her about a book that I'd really enjoyed and that she should definitely read. And, and like after five minutes of me groping around for <laughs> what, I, what I loved about this book, she said, don't ever pitch your own book. So yeah, so uh, I think Simon's probably got an e- a bit of an easy ride today, but, uh, but I, I, I don't, I don't <laughs> well, we'll mind. find out. We'll find out. <laughs> um, now you don't have to use all your three minutes, but if you're still talking at the three-minute mark, I'm going to cut you down and stop you in your prime. Okay. And Simon, you have to choose um, which which weapon is going to cut you down at three minutes. Will it be the school bell yes. <laughs> or the bicycle horn? Uh, I'll go for the school bell, I think. School bell, for you. all right, no problem. Uh, okay, Steve, before we start the timer, just tell us the book that you're putting forward. I'm going to put forward Paradoxical Undressing by Kristen Hirsch. All righty, three minutes on the clock then. Over to you to tell us about Paradoxical Undressing. 
Thank you. Well, I should start by saying I am a big... Kristen Hirsch is a musician first and foremost, and a writer second, although she's brilliant at both. And I'm a big fan of Kristen's music, um, which I say is a bit of a disclaimer, because I don't think you need to be a fan of her music to enjoy this book. Um, Paradoxical Undressing is a memoir that was based on... Um, diary that she kept when she was 18 years of age and it basically covers the year uh, when she was 18. She was in a band, she still is in a band called Throwing Muses and for those that don't know Throwing Muses, Throwing Muses are a, um, a slightly awkward, uh, well she describes them in the book as being where, where most bands and most music is like um, candy floss and sugar, Throwing Muses are like spinach. So she says they're bitter and ragged, but they're good for you. Um, so throwing muses aren't for everybody. <laughs> um, but the, the book covers a year when she was 18. So she set up the band at 14 with her stepsister. And so when we, when, at the age of 18, she was playing gigs in, a, in and around um, Rhode Island, where they are from, where she's from. Um, but it's a year in which she um, moved to Boston with the band, um, had a breakdown uh, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, got a record deal, um, got pregnant and recorded her first album. And <laughs> strangely, in the book, she describes it as a year where nothing much happened. <laughs> um, she describes in the book that she, I mean, I think it's for me, it's a book about creativity. It's a book about uh, creativity and art and, and how that can affect people. Because in the book, she describes how she'd had a... Uh, she was involved in a car accident. She was hit, hit when she was on her bike. And since the accident, she found that songs, rather than sitting down and writing songs at the piano or the guitar, which is what you might expect, songs would visit her in the form of hallucinations, auditory and visual hallucinations. And uh, they would literally kind of, well, she describes it as screaming in her face. Um, and she would, if, if it was a song that featured a snake, she would see a snake. Um, if it, if it was a song that featured a wolf, she would see wolves uh, until she could get the song out of her, if you like. So she could she could write it down. Um, and uh, after this car accident, these things became very, very traumatic for her. And uh, she was diagnosed with mania um, and had to have she was put on medication. But the medication meant that she couldn't play the guitar because her hands shook. So it's this kind of like quite traumatic, if you like, story of this person's breakdown. Um, but it's told in a very, very disarming way. And the thing that I think really makes the book stand out is it's running through the book as well is Kristen's friendship with a woman called Betty Hutton, who was a musical star from, I think, the 50s. But she was in uh, Fred Astaire films. She was in Get, Annie Get Your Gun, replacing Judy Garland. And they were, it's really, she was 18 and Betty was, I don't know how old, in her 50s. Oh, OK. <laughs> That's it. That's enough of that. Oh, harsh. I'm Harsh. I'd be honest with you. I did. I mean, that took a lot of doing because I just wanted to hear more because that, that sounds <laughs> absolutely fascinating. Um, take a breather, Steve. We'll come back and, and just dissect your lovely pitch in just a moment. All right. uh, but it's time for Mayo to step up to the plate yes. now. Um, what book are you putting forward? Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm hardly <laughs> taking a huge punt, but my book is my book is Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. Fantastic. All right, three minutes on the clock for you then to tell us about the Underground Railroad. Yeah, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm going to take up three minutes really, but this was the last book I think that I remember. You know that slowing down thing that you do when you don't want a book to finish. And I was on holiday, so I actually did finish this book. And we were on holiday in Iceland, and uh, and I remember every kind of every 
word, every sentence, every chapter uh, of the book uh, at the end. It's an astonishing, it's a slave book. It's a story about Cora, uh, who is a runaway um, woman uh, in 19th century America. She escapes from a plantation. Uh, she is chased by a slave catcher by the name of Ridgeway. Um, and it has, I mean, it, it's an astonishing story. And every, everyone knows that the Underground Rail, Railroad is a thing that happened. And it was the procedure, a series of kind of safe houses and uh, routes that uh, runaway enslaved people used to try and get to freedom. Colson Whitehead's genius is to turn it into a, like a science fantasy, science fiction book where the rail, the railroad is an actual railroad. So in the middle of early 19th century America, they're going underground and getting on these astonishing steam trains, which is taking them to the next, to the next stop. It's incredibly tough. Uh, it's incredibly inspiring. Um, it's desperately sad and thrillingly brilliant. And Barry Jenkins is, we were talking about TV adaptations earlier, who did Moonlight and if Beale Street could talk, is doing it as a TV series, which I cannot wait to see. The, uh, the reason why I ended up going for, for this is that I mentioned Mad Blood Stirring earlier, which uh, is historical fiction and is set in um, early 19th century in Dartmoor prison. And many, many of the characters in there are, are black. And I felt, um, the most white and the most Londony I've ever felt, trying to write the lives of these people from different parts of the United States. Some uh, had never been slaves, some were escaped slaves, some were just freemen of many generations. Um, anyway, so I just, I just wanted to read lots about how other authors tackled the issue. And I'm so thrilled that um, I ended up reading The Underground Railroad. And apart from the fact it's got Terrific. Barack Obama on the front. That's not a bad quote, is it, really? <laughs> and I think, and it, and it won the Pulitzer, you know, so that's why I say I'm not going out on a limb. So my book is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction 2017, <laughs> The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Ten seconds to go. Thank you. That's it. <laughs> so that's how a professional does it you see that, i need lesson i th i think he works in radio doesn't he with timing like that i had a, I had a um, stopwatch i've got a stopwatch here oh right <laughs> see, no, see that never even occurred to me <laughs> oh well thank you both for those um very quickly i just want to talk about this Kristen hirsch um i don't know the book i know of her and i do mm. really like her solo records actually mm. and just hearing you talk about this book, you know, being about sort of, well, I mean, it's hilarious, isn't it? That she said a year that, that not much happens and she's yeah. going to break down, gets a record deal, gets pregnant. She's only 18, etc., And she's doing all that at such a young age, you know, I'm sort it just sounds fascinating. It sounds like a, as a sort of, from an artist's and, you know, sort of cultural mm. point of view, um, something to to really read and enjoy and like you say you don't need to know the music to actually mm, no i don't think up. you do i mean I've, i thought long and hard about that whether it's something which actually only appeals to fans of her work i don't think it would i think it's it should have a, a wider readership but i just wonder can you pick it up because i thought it might have gone out of print 
I think it might have done, uh, actually. Um, it's definitely still available on Kindle, if that's your thing, and, and probably other, other e-reader mm. uh, things mm. exist. <laughs> but it is, I think it's still available on e-book, certainly. And, and it, you, can, yeah, you can get it second-hand. Uh, I'm not, sort I'm of adds to the mystery of it, though, yeah. a bit. Yeah, the, exactly. the, not the yeah. mystery, but the, yeah. uh, the, the, the preciousness yeah. of it, maybe. And for anyone who is <laughs> interested, it's actually in America it was released with the title Rap Girl. Um, Rap Girl? Rat Girl. Oh right, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, not not rap girl. That would be strange. Yeah, yeah rat, rat girl, which is also strange, I suppose. Um, but uh, yeah, so I really want to read it after hearing you talk about it. And in terms of the Underground Railroad, which I have read, Simon, but hearing you talk about it just brought it all back. And actually, I think you're right for anyone that hasn't picked up this book. Oh, I mean, mm. Colson is a genius, isn't he? And and he does he does something with that with that time period and, and with a story that perhaps could have been told in a way we've read it before and he just turns it on his head. The thing is, it, I, it's so... I know I'm going outside, you know, by three minutes. It's such, it's that jump. I mean, you have to have the audacity and the genius, of course, <laughs> wired to do it. But to say, what what if the Underground Railroad was actually an Underground Railroad? You know, I mean, it sounds mm. so obvious when you say it now, but you can imagine a number of editors going, are you mad? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. <What?" laughs> yes, exactly. But... That that idea that you savoured it as well, I think, is important. You read it on holiday and you sl- you did the slowing down thing, which I knew and I knew exactly what you meant when you said it. Um, so I thought they were absolutely brilliant pictures. Uh, uh, b- both books. I want to reread Colson Whitehead, um, but I'm, do you know what? I'm going to take home Kristen Hurst. Just because it sounds absolutely bonkers. Yes, it is bonkers in a great way. <laughs> and I suppose possibly because, as Simon alluded to, a lot of people listening will, will know of the Underground Railroad, yeah. might have read it already. Uh, so let's give Kristen Hirsch a, a little bit more of a, of a push. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to cancel the interview with Steve now. <laughs> <laughs> you can have the fiver then, those... Simon. I can give no, you the I jest, I jest, I jest. <laughs> I'll put I'll put the crumpled fiver in the post to you, Steve. All right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you both for those uh, fabulous pictures. It was really great hearing about them. Uh, and Knife Edge by Simon May is out now. It's in paperback and published by the brilliant Doubleday. And Final Cut by S.J. Watson is also out, also in paperback. And it's published by Black Swan. And they are both well worth your time if there is a space on those bookshelves for them. Simon... Steve, thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 